Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. I hope all of you are having a good week. Hard to believe we're already through uh, the midway part to this week. You know, whenever it gets to that midway part of a week, you have to ask yourself, man, time really is flying by quick. Well, I will say that we are getting very, very near to the end of the Whiskey Rebellion. George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and the Frontier Rebels, who challenged America's uh, newfound sovereignty by William Hoagland. I must say, it's been quite a a roller coaster uh, journey for this uh, podcast topic. And I guess I say a roller coaster uh, journey because it's, you know, when you think of a roller coaster, you know, it starts off on flat terrain and then you work your way up and then you take a couple of uh, big drops and then you go, you know, whirling around um, all, all sorts of um, all sorts of twists and turns. And, you know, I'm not a big fan of roller coasters, but I can say that uh, this podcast series uh, topic has been, you know, sort of like a roller coaster of sorts because you, we don't know... Um, what to expect in terms of uh, surprises, but what we do know is that that this uh, roller coaster journey is one that um, hopefully will is going to be one of those uh, journeys where good will prevail over evil. What do I mean by good? Well, I'm hoping that in the sense of good, that the government will be able to restore uh, law and order. The evil, it might. It might sound harsh, but the evil here are those uh, law or those citizens along the frontier whom are not uh, complying with uh, federal law. They're, they might be entitled to their own um, opinions about why they are opposed to this uh, whiskey tax, but they're not entitled um, by any means whatsoever to um, repeal the law. As a, as a matter of fact, from the previous podcast, Alexander Hamilton said that, you know, the only people whom have the authority to repeal a law are the legislators. And if that doesn't work, then there's a higher institution that can um, that can determine whether or not a law is truly valid. And that being the United States Supreme Court, you know, ordinary uh, people can certainly voice their opposition but yet they are the ones that don't have the uh, sole power. That power is from above. And of course, you know, we have people whom are elected to represent those below. And if you're not happy with your legislator, and if you're not satisfied, of course, I'm using 18th century terminology here, if you're not satisfied with how um, Mr. Jones, I'm going to use this as a fictitious name because we have to remember an 18th 18th and uh, 19th century, uh, pretty much, um, you know, men are politicians. You know, it's not till the very late 19th century, and obviously by the time women finally win the right to vote in 1920, that women start um, being able to have uh, greater roles in uh, elected office uh, positions. Uh, but, but the bottom line is that um, for Alexander Hamilton. The only people whom have the means of repealing a law are those um, in elected office. So, so in a nutshell, good in the sense meaning the government has a mission, and that is to uh, restore law and order along the frontier. The bad part is that 
how are we going how is the government going to be able to achieve those end results well we already do know that um that that uh washington and hamilton got a certification from uh, united states supreme court uh, justice james wilson of pennsylvania james wilson authorized the certification he um he read over the report that Hamilton provided him and that um, federal agents or uh, tax collectors had been not only harassed but assaulted, tarred, feathered. James Wilson decides that, well, you know, if all these other um, strategies haven't worked, then we don't have any other choice but to uh, call out the um, call out mass number of troops. Isn't it fair to say that state militias are like the equivalent of uh, modern-day uh, state, modern-day uh, national guards per each state? Absolutely. So in, in this uh, podcast segment, I, I do remember when I was on the air last with you guys, I did mention that we were going to get into a two-part series on uh, Washington uh, going west. So this is the uh, first part of that uh, podcast uh, segment Um segment section to the Whiskey Rebellion. So here we go with our first uh, leadoff question. By October 9th, 1794, had President Washington already been stationed in Pennsylvania? Yes. Washington had set up quarters, or rather I should say lodging, in Carlisle. Now Carlisle, in case any of you aren't sure where Carlisle is in Pennsylvania. It's outside of um, Harrisburg. It's closer to um, Hanover. Uh, It's not too terribly far, I should say, from the Pennsylvania-Maryland line, but Carlisle is on the uh, outskirts of Harrisburg, uh, Pennsylvania's present-day capital. Now, it is also in Carlisle where New Jersey and Pennsylvania um, militia, or rather I should say troop forces, have have gathered. As for uh, George Washington, Washington, along with uh, Alexander Hamilton and, Pencil- and Pennsylvania Governor Thomas Mifflin, whom is the commander of Pennsylvania's uh, troops, they met with uh, Congressman William Finley and David Reddick. Remember, folks, Congressman William Finley represents uh, pretty much the bulk of uh, western Pennsylvania. Um, If he doesn't represent all five of the counties, he probably represents at least four of the five. Remember, Bedford is the easternmost of the five counties. The westernmost being the other four are uh, Westmoreland, Washington, Allegheny, and Fayette. So uh, Washington, uh, Hamilton, and Governor Mifflin have met with, uh, are meeting with Congressman William Finley and David Reddick. And both of these men are um, moderates, forks of the Ohio moderates. They, um, these two men, sought a last, you might say a last-minute resolution or a last-ditch uh, resort in, in terms of the form of resolution, with uh, intent on seeing Washington's army return back. They really feel that if, uh, if a huge army does in fact show up into western Pennsylvania, it's going to make things even worse. It could lead to further tension. Um, 
David Reddick and Congressman William Finley believe that they have the situation under control. Well, you know, it is great that they feel as though they might have the situation under control to the best of their ability, but George Washington's got a job, folks. And at the same time, you know, Washington wanted this mission to be as secret as possible. Do you think it would would have been fair? Well, I don't know if I'd say fair is the right word. Do you think it would have been wise if Washington had advised William Finley and David Reddick that uh, that the greater coordination behind this movement not only was secret, but that he had gotten approval from uh, United States Supreme Court Justice James Wilson? No. And the reason for that is because it just would have opened up a jar full of more worms to where the jar lids could not be fully resealed. You know, it's one thing to tell a couple of people, but you better tell, if you're going to tell a couple of people some uh, very, very important information, you better make sure it's the right people. Because once the cat gets out of the, um, out of the hat, or if the jar lid is opened, so uh, wide uh, to where you know that uh, resealing it is going to uh, take an eternity, then not, then not only have you uh, hurt yourself, but you have hurt others uh, around you whom um, entrusted you with this uh, highly uh, classified information. Or not just highly classified, but just sensitive information. And even worse, if you if you spread this news to people who weren't authorized to to obtain or learn about it, you're just a adding more gossip to uh, a nasty situation. Uh, there was a quote that I uh, saw uh, somewhere. It, it had to do with regards to gossip, and it was the following: uh, Gossip is like a nasty virus. The only way to contain it is to keep your mouth closed. Sounds harsh, but as the old saying goes, less said the better. So for George Washington, um, he obviously is not, is not going to, or and let alone won't be sharing with Congressman William Finley and David Reddick the orders that he not only uh, submitted to uh, Jane, uh, United, State, United States uh, Supreme Court Justice James Wilson, but the approval he got from James Wilson. Now, October 4th was the official day of Washington's arrival into Carlisle. After his, his uh, moment, or right after the, the time that he had just arrived into Carlisle, Washington got down to official business pertaining to all things troop and provision related. Why do you think he would have needed to... To, to get down to all things troop and provision related. Well, you've got soldiers coming from four states, not just Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, you got New Jersey, Maryland, Virginia. And isn't it fair to say that, um, that the soldiers from all four states are coming in under different conditions? Yes. Is it fair to say that, um, that uh, Pennsylvanians, I, I'm just going to, guess here, is it fair to say that maybe Pennsylvanians have more access to um, adequate clothing than uh, Marylanders? I honestly don't know, but what I do know is that it's probably fair to say that uh, some Marylanders, per their, uh, per their um, regiments, probably um, did not have, um, say, multiple pairs of shoes, 
They were probably lucky if they just had one pair of shoes. If anybody had more than one pair of shoes, it might be fair to say that was the um, commanding officers. And um, to make matters even more interesting here, that the army moving west under Washington and Hamilton was comprised of two classes. Something else I should point out here real quick before we get into the um, get into the uh, breakdown of the two classes. Is it also fair to say that each um, each set of troops, regardless of the state they came from, had adequate um, adequate provisions in the form of food? No. Is it fair to say that they all had at enough uh, tents? Is it fair to say that uh, is it fair to say that all soldiers had had everything, regardless of where they were coming from? Uh, the answer is no. So. One of Washington's biggest dilemmas is, okay, I've got to make sure that the troops are not only properly clothed, they have proper um, proper means of uh, having adequate um, cartridge, adequate um, powder, um, adequate um, bullets uh, for uh, firing uh for their muskets or uh, rifles. In other words, I can't leave any soldier behind. I can't leave anybody who has uh, signed up for this duty behind, but I also have to ensure that the officers whom are, um, whom are supervising these soldiers also have uh, the proper um, provisions. So this is, in a sense, this mission really is about survival of the fittest. I think it was the same way even in the American Revolutionary War. But Washington knows that no two states are alike whom are participating. But at, the, but at the end of the day, and when it's all said and done with, Washington's got to ensure that the army going west is unified, that the army going west has all of the necessary adequate provisions, because he doesn't know how long they might be out there. The objective is to get this uh, matter resolved as quickly as possible, but it's probably not going to be a one- or two-day event. Washington knows that he's got to make sure that his troops have enough food. Food, to me, is one of the biggest challenges. I mean, we got to remember, there's no such, we don't have grocery stores like we know today. Um, we don't have, um, you know, we've got to take into consideration, okay, how many... Um, pounds of beef is it going to take to feed a, an army? Maybe not just a whole army, but units, uh, units of, of troops. Like how many, like say two units of troops, how many pounds of beef are going to be required to, to feed per each uh, soldier? And not just food, we got to think, not just the beef aspect, how about flour? Flour that's used to make bread, uh, maybe various kinds of bread, but I wouldn't think that they would have time to make 12 different kinds of breads. They might be lucky if they're making one or two breads, but the most basic of bread, you know, this army, kind of like the Continental Army, it doesn't have time to eat three meals in a day. We might be lucky if we're getting two meals at best, but the bottom line is that uh, one thing Washington can't afford to have he can't afford to have any uh, mutiny from within. If there is mutiny, then it's going to lead to the collapse of an army. 
you know, what Washington wants more now than ever is that he, he needs a functioning army, not just in a time of war. He needs a functioning army in time of peace. Because, you know, three years earlier at, at uh, in Ohio, um, General Arthur St. Clair's troops were routed by uh, nearly a dozen Indian troops, or not Indian troops, pardon me, but by a dozen Indian tribes. Uh, this was a um, an attempt to uh, take Ohio by force against the uh, Indian tribes, but the Indian tribes repulsed this attack to where nearly a thousand of uh, General Arthur St. Clair's men uh, died by means of a guerrilla warf warfare-style fighting. So for Washington, uh, you know, three years later, you know, he's in the midst of another crisis, but he but we're not dealing with Indians here. We're dealing with with our own people. But still, he needs to have an army that is effective. He doesn't need to have any kind of repeat of what happened along the uh, frontier in, Ohio, in what we now know as present-day Ohio from three years earlier in 1791. Now, uh, as I mentioned earlier, and I'm coming back to it now, the army moving west under uh, Washington and Hamilton comprised of two classes. The officers came from the creditor aristocracy, if you have officers coming from the creditor aristocracy, or rather I should say all of your officers, the majority, is it fair to say that the officers coming from the creditor aristocracy came uh, along the coast, or what we would think of as uh, port or seaboard cities? Yes. So when, when I think of uh, port cities, those seaboard uh, cities, I think of Philadelphia, I think of... Um, yeah, even Baltimore, Maryland, uh, Norfolk, Virginia. I also think of, you know, like Boston, Massachusetts, Newport, Rhode Island, uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Just to name a few, uh, of course, New York. You can't forget New York, but uh, just to name a few of the uh, many uh, seaport uh, cities that still are even um, very um, prevalent uh, in today's modern-day world. So for uh, Washington, yes. So for the um, the officers, they would have come from the aris from the creditor aristocracy, meaning that they uh, came from families who had lots of money, and by having lots of money, that means you have greater means of purchasing materials. Of course, as one person said, it was one thing for the gentry to show off their wealth. But many of, uh, but many uh, members of the gentry, being that one to two percent of the greater society, were the ones that more often than not struggled to pay off debts. Of course, that's a whole other topic for another subject. But it's one thing to be in the creditor aristocracy, or let alone uh, the aristocratic elite or the gentry. But if you are struggling with paying your uh, debts, it's one thing to show off the wealth in terms of the the possessions you have but it, it to me it doesn't mean the same thing as not being able to pay off those um outs off those long list of outstanding debts and it is fair to say that officers from the uh, creditor aristocracy were um they had very very elegant uniforms well decorated uniformed officers equaled out to high rank commanders had to be respected the second group are the uh, militia draftees. 
This is the other class that comprised really of uh, poor laborers, landless workers, newly arrived immigrants. They really had no proper or formal uniforms like the officers had. They lacked access to adequate clothing, which meant not just so much adequate clothing, but it's also going to mean um, lacking access to adequate um, means of having um, good uh, sleeping amenities. So for many of the um, militia draftees, they're going to be sleeping in tents on the ground outside with uh, proper insulation. And in uh, 18th century, um, you know, we don't have insulation like we know uh, in today's modern world, but the insulation that would have been used in 18th century time would have been in the form of straws, or in the form of straw, <laughs> hay straw, uh, that uh, would be used uh, for farming or uh, agricultural purposes. Officers, on the other hand, were lodging in taverns and homes where they ha would have had all sorts of uh, means to obtaining um, access and um, attaining greater amenities. So there really is no middle of the road in the uh, military. You know, if you're an officer, you've got it well made. If you are a militia draftee, you know, you'll be lucky if you have the most basic 101 stuff. But even if you have some basic 101 stuff, it doesn't assure you that you are that that you're going to be able to get the best of um, the best of the um, amenities like uh, the commanders have. Now, prior to the official um, westward march beginning, maintaining discipline and order amongst the troops in general was not an easy task. How so? Well, there were incidents of troop drunkenness. Okay. You know, it's one thing for um, these militiamen to have a drink. Not just to have a drink, but start having multiple drinks. Multiple drinks to where rowdiness becomes prevalent, to where fights can break out amongst militiamen from within. When you have that, it's going to lead to uh, a breakdown and um, perhaps breakdown in obeying a commander's uh, orders breakdown and um, and failure to respect um, and failure to respect the uh, rules of, um, of proper conduct it's just um, it's very unbecoming so troop drunkenness often resulted in floggings refusal to follow commander's orders to lacking true fundamental understanding of greater commitment before them. What was the greater commitment before them? Putting down rebellion involving potential traitors. In other words, if you're a troop or just or if you are comprised of a large set of troops, you need to set an example, not just for yourself, you need to set a good example for the your for the unit you're serving in. You also need to set a good example for those whom are doing the exact opposite of what you're doing. And if you're not setting a good example, then you are obviously promoting the behaviors that are existing 
behaviors that are existing that will only get worse if nothing is done to put down the behavior that if if unchecked will become has potential to become a uh, a permanent norm after all if there's one thing washington can't stand is uh chaos he cannot stand um defiance what he favors is order and without order how can a government function even when it's still in its infancy i mean this uh young republic's not even 10 years old just yet by 1794 but if the government wants to set a good example for its people then there has to be law and order uh, did William Finley and David Reddick arrive into Carlisle five days after uh, President um, Washington had done so? Uh, yes. Both men arrived uh, June 9th, shortly after two civilians. These were men whom were not part of the um, greater um, troop movement. They weren't a part of the um, military but they are just two innocent civilians. Well, I don't know if I'd say how innocent one of them might have been, but one of them might have been, but two civilians died from unnecessary acts of violence uh, within town and camp. Sometimes uh, unfortunate things happen to people when they are in the wrong place at the wrong time. As for William Finley and David Reddick, they opposed all means of resorting to war and the repercussions behind what war itself brought. However, President Washington has reminded, uh, went about reminding Congressman Finley how American citizens in general needed to exercise better caution along with proper judgment in regard, along with um, exercising their emotions over any or all things uh, government uh, related. In other words, you know, George Washington has told Congressman Finley that, look, you know, people can express opposition towards something. They may not have to like everything, but if there's one thing that I don't want to tolerate is um, lawlessness to the point where there are people who are willing to take up arms against the government and put not only, and put not only, um, lives of other people around them who are law-abiding citizens in danger, but perhaps the greater institution of democracy in danger because, you know, we have this government called a republic, and as the late Benjamin Franklin had said, and of course he was the first, um, the first uh, signer of the U.S. Constitution to die. Uh, he passed away in 1790 at age 84, but as Ben Franklin said, you know, it's a republic. Um, this is what the new government's going to be called. It's going to be a republic, but it's going to be up to you all in the present generation and future generations going forward to be able to maintain it. And that's really, in a sense, what George Washington is trying to carry out. Okay, it may not be the most perfect government, but it's the best we can come up with. But it's up to you all as to how you, how you want to wish to um, maintain what we have. Washington has no time for going backwards whatsoever. Washington uh, also advised uh, Congressman Finley that the troops were law-abiding, including their purpose, and that purpose was in, in establishing peace versus prosecuting, peace versus judging, P 
peace versus sentencing or executing. So in other words, the purpose was to establish peace, to put down what was already in existence, but that if there were to be any prosecutions, sentencing, or last case scenario, or, or I should say worst case scenario, executions, that would be taken up by, not by the troops en route to uh, Western PA, but, uh, but elsewhere from within the government. Well, it would be fair to say that civil authorities would handle prosecution along with sentencing and worst case scenario executions. And what I mean by executions, folks, are those whom were found guilty, say, of treason, for example. Washington told Congressman Finley that those along the forks, along the forks of the Ohio who signed the September 11th agreement would remain under mass pardon terms, being an amnesty, mass pardon of multiple individuals whom have been forgiven of their um, of an action or of um, or of certain uh, actions. Um, based upon the, um, the matter at hand. Now, President Washington started sending troops off from uh, Carlisle the morning of October 10th, 1794. The order uh, began with New Jersey and Pennsylvania troops leading the way. Unfortunately, there were some internal um, issues that led to delays. This doesn't make Washington happy. Washington is a very, very organized man. Yes, it, it, someone might say, gosh, you know, he, he seems to jump the gun or he seems to get very upset over petty things. Well, you have to remember, folks, George Washington, um, I mean, he's seen it all. I mean, he's, you know, he's almost 62 years old. I don't think, or maybe he, I would say he already is 62 years old by late 1794. But Washington knows that, um, after his time in office as president comes to an end, he won't be seeking any other office. But what Washington does want to leave behind is a very, very good legacy, knowing that not only one day will he become known as the father of our country, but when he does sadly pass away a few years after his presidency, a Virginian uh, by the name of um, Light Horse Harry Lee uh, being uh, Robert E. Lee's father, would eventually go on to say that Washington was first in the hearts of his fellow countrymen and first in the hearts of the people. So Washington, you know, yes, he might have his uh, idiosyncrasies, but Washington is uh, is a man who basically wants to set a good example no matter where he is on national stage. And if he can't set a good example, then who can? So um, these delays do, yes, in fact, um, upset Washington, but he decides to take a, a different course of direction. He has decided that he is going to make adjustments by going uh, to Fort Cumberland, where he would help mobilize the uh, Army's southern wing. So in other words, he's going to uh, see to it that whoever else below him will uh, help modify the problem in Carlisle, with the New Jersey and Pennsylvania troops, but he is now going to go uh, south into uh, Maryland around uh, Fort Cumberland, and there is a place in Maryland 
called uh, Cumberland, uh, Maryland, which is uh, pretty much adjacent to the Maryland-Pennsylvania uh, line. Did Bedford County mark the eastern edge of rebel territory? It's fair to say yes. Troops reported seeing small numbers of homes along with encountering roads consisting of large rocks and old pine trees which hung over them. The troops viewed uh, the people of Bedford as odd, poor, reserved. They had just never seen people like this before, so I guess it really was something foreign to them. Washington led 3,000 troops into Bedford. October 20th, Alexander Hamilton, writing on behalf of President Washington, sent Henry Lee orders for commanding all forces. Now, okay, so, Pres so Alexander Hamilton, folks, is writing on behalf of President Washington, and what did, what did he, uh, what did I just say that he did? He sent Henry Lee orders for commanding all, tr all forces. Is there a reason why maybe Washington um, is not going forward? Well, Washington has uh, a lot of trust in Alexander Hamilton, and he also has a lot of uh, trust in, uh, in Henry Lee. I'm almost wondering maybe if it's not a good idea for Washington to go all the way um, into the uh, frontier with the fear that maybe somebody, some lunatic out there, I know I shouldn't sound, I know that sounds harsh, but the fear that a lunatic could shoot him from a distance. Well, you know, um, I should point out that even when Washington uh, was commanding the Continental Army during the uh, American Revolutionary War, uh, I learned about this in a documentary that um, I want to say it was in uh, New York, I, I believe it was, during the New York uh, debacle um, campaign of 1776. And I, I could be wrong, but I want to say it was in New York that someone on the British side, a soldier, spotted Washington nearby to where he was in perfect range to take him out. It just so happened that there were some other um, officers with Washington who, they didn't know this, but they were pretty much shielding him. But for a brief moment, Washington was an open target. Had this British soldier fired upon him, the cause for independence would have taken a drastic turn, a drastic turn that uh, might not have... Um, led to um, what we know of or what we would go to know as um, American independence. It's just one of those things. You never know sometimes what could have uh, been done uh, differently. And then, you know, if that had been the case, then we probably would have been forced to resubmit our um, allegiance uh, back to the crown. There are a lot of what-ifs, but that's one of them. So, Yes, there might have been uh, concerns that someone along the frontier could have had it out for the president, and therefore Washington um, turned back east. However, he did advise Alexander Hamilton that the army must maintain the utmost high-level standards of conduct when entering western Pennsylvania. 
In other words, there was to be no looting at all. Stealing, or let alone acts of stealing, would result in what? Flogging. I just wonder if, with Washington not being here now, can Alexander Hamilton oversee that can Alexander Hamilton oversee the troops or will Alexander Hamilton do something completely opposite of what George Washington did not want to even happen? Well, did Alexander Hamilton make theft legal? Now, I thought just a second ago that stealing would result in a potential uh, punishment of uh, flogging. Well, it turns out that the reason why Alexander Hamilton made theft legal had to do with um, the Quartermaster Corps. Why is the Quartermaster Corps so important? Well, they are the um, unit or the unit of men whom oversee provisions, not just uh, clothing, not just the shoes, not just, uh, say, rifles, muskets, cartridges. They also see food, oversee food. They see it all. I mean, they are pretty, uh, the Quartermaster Corps is the lifeblood to ensure that an army is uh, not only uh, clothed, not only has proper uh, means of um, sleeping arrangements. I mean, considering if you're just the average Joe soldier, you're, you're not going to be able to lodge in a tavern. But, if, but you will get a tent. And that's probably going to mean sharing your tent with probably two or three other men. I don't know of very many soldiers who had the luxury of sleeping in their own tent. If they did, that's great. But, but in a time of uh, crisis, you'll be—you probably will have to share your tents with at least four, with three or four other men. So yes, the quartermaster corps um, was given uh, greater power under Alexander Hamilton's uh, leadership in making theft legal. So Hamilton gives the Quartermaster Corps the necessary means to seize civilian property. Okay, by seizing civilian property, folks, what is that going to mean? Perhaps taking um, the average um, Joe's, um, the average family's uh, livestock, you know, a middling family who's making only 12 pounds a year, so yes, the um, the troops, along with um, officers in the quartermaster corps, can come on to uh, the Joneses' property without their direct consent, without the Jones family's direct consent, and seize uh, the Jones family's livestock. Uh, could also seize other um, essentials within their home. Think about it. I mean. Yes, there, there is that Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution, the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizures. But it, here we are in the midst of a domestic war, or, well, a potential domestic war, and even the, one of the most basic pressing needs is um, ensuring that the troops get fed. Because even the Quartermaster Corps, no matter how hard they try to um, have adequate uh, means of... Um, food supply, it's, it's probably never going to be able to be 100% um, at a 100% level. So what is that going to mean? It's going to mean going onto civilian uh, properties without those homeowners' direct consent. 
and seize whatever is necessary to ensure that the large number of troops don't go um, without um, without pro- with, how do you call it? They don't go uh, hungry. They don't go um, starved. They are not uh, deprived of the most uh, basic um, necessities, and that is also having adequate food. Well, and it's not just the food. How about grain, firewood, blankets? So you could be going into people's homes and taking their blankets without the homeowner's consent. These are trying times, just like they were 15, year, 15 20 years before when we were... Uh, beginning to fight uh, the British and the American Revolution. Now, impressment, whenever I think of impressment, I think of um, in times of war, especially when I first learned about the term impressment, I learned about it when uh, studying about the War of 1812. Impressment uh, can mean a number of things, but in this case, it had to do with the seizure of civilian property. Come the first week of, of November 1794, uh, troops were being sent into the Forks region with minimal issues, but a lot of this was due to uh, the Quartermaster Corps being able to um, come in swiftly into um, homeowners' um, homes or property, but doing so without any uh, direct consent. And the use of force had to have been pretty um, severe. I can't imagine being the average family and having to give up your uh, livestock, but it happened. So Alexander Hamilton and Henry Lee established uh, separate headquarters, but communicated with one another via express rider uh, courier. Uh, Henry Lee issued a proclamation uh, to um, the people of western Pennsylvania, which entailed extremes of force that President Washington authorized with objectives, or let alone the objective, behind restoring order. Lee himself advised to the people that soldiers would be coming onto their properties and and administering oaths of allegiance. This is is a lot of news to take in if you are... um, if you are a native along the uh, western Pennsylvania frontier, you've got to wonder, okay, if not just a soldier, but how many soldiers are coming onto my property? And are they going to do anything else to um, perhaps intimidate me or let alone threaten my family besides seeing to it that, that the uh, oath of allegiance be administered? There are a lot of what-ifs and uh, unknowns. Now, prior to uh, November 1794, arrests had taken place around October of 1794, most notably Herman Husband's arrest. Remember Herman Husband? He was the one that, um, uh, interesting character uh, to say the least, but he was the one that um, inspired the uh, militiamen along the frontier to take up arms against the government based upon... um, based upon how the uh, whiskey tax was seen by pretty much everybody along the frontier is just being flat out unjust, unfair. So Herman Husband had been on the top of Washington, of the Washington administration's most wanted list. Richard Peters, who was a federal judge, authorized troops with the means to arrest Husband and other fellow members. 
Herman Husband, believe it or not, did not put up a resistance as he saw the Federal Army's presence as an inevitable force not to mess with. He knew that once the uh, Federal Army had arrived, that his uh, holdout was no longer um, relevant. Husband uh, arrived as a prisoner into Philadelphia late October. He was not the same Herman Husband from a few years earlier. This go-around, he looks very old and frail. I, I mean, he's probably at least in his early 70s or, or probably about 70 years old at that time. Around the time Alexander Hamilton and uh, Henry Lee started making arrests of those along the Forks, many other men avoided capture by leaving the immediate area. Those whom didn't surrender were already wanted for committing some form of rebellious activity, which meant they weren't within proper amnesty guidelines in being secured federal protection. Yeah, it's one thing to avoid um, not wanting to get arrested, but once you do that, you are no longer in the uh, you're no longer in the guidelines for being assured uh, safe uh, protection. Think of this um, amnesty; it's almost like being in a uh, federal witness pr protection program of to an extent. Now, uh, why was November 13th, 1794 dubbed the Dreadful Night? The Dreadful Night, uh, that sounds pretty um, intense. Well, for starters, an intense uh, search effort by federal troops focused upon arresting dissident suspects within Washington and Allegheny counties and this was done so, folks, without relying upon warrants. I thought you needed a, 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 a warrant to arrest someone, especially if you had probable cause on that person to issue the arrest. Well, you know, times are a little different here. And, um, you know, once again, the theme is getting law and order restored as quickly as possible, given what has uh, happened uh, more so with, over a course of three years. Secondly, Alexander Hamilton, along with the Nevilles and U.S. Attorney William Rawl, compiled a three-tier list. The first list had to do with people within the mass pardon group. The second list were suspects committing acts of treason, which meant an immediate arrest. The third list were the material witnesses whom possessed information about those about those individuals who were ring or what we call key leaders behind the uprisings. The majority of the Forks residents with and without amnesty were apprehended. And this is where it gets really bad, folks. I question some of this. It, this is uh, to me, this is very, very scary I can't imagine being a resident along the forks of the Ohio. Middle of the night, troops break into my home. Troops are pointing bayonets right at me to say, you're under arrest. Only to force, let's say, only to force me out of my home without any kind of adequate clothing, given just how cold it had become outside. So think about this. You're in the middle of the night, you're asleep, and all of a sudden federal troops knock on, they don't knock on your door, it's like they just break it down. 
they don't um, knock on the door to say we need to, to have you come out, Mr. Jones. We need to um, ask you some questions. They just barrage right on in, break down the door, and start um, pointing um, their bayonets at those whom they um, know are need to be arrested. So those uh, suspects whom were um, arrested were sent to multiple places for questioning, being town jails, stables, cattle pens, of all things. Then you have a man, talk about a very, very unstable man, but he was, um, his name was General Anthony White. His nickname was Blackbeard. I don't know if there's any if that's a nickname that bears the resemblance to uh, Blackbeard the Pirate, but nonetheless, uh, General Anthony White, a.k.a. Blackbeard, he uh, was a general of the New Jersey militia, unstable. He oversaw prisoners whom were arrested at Mingo Creek. He oversaw 40 Mingo Creek prisoners. If you want to talk about barbaric and cruel and unusual uh, punishment, be prepared for this. He oversaw um, 40 Mingo Creek prisoners get tied back-to-back in pairs and sit in, in the icy mud of, the tavern cellar, of a tavern cellar facility. General White go, goes on to order guards to build fires for themselves but to not provide the prisoners with any adequate provisions, such as food and drink. Over two days, General White starved and dehydrated his prisoners, only to oversee them go to Washington, um, the town of Washington, where they were held in jail without charges brought before them. To me, this is cruel and unusual punishment, especially to um, not even provide adequate provisions to a prisoner, to prisoners such as food and drink. You know, you may not have to like the fact that that they may have committed some form of crime, but, well, I know some people, you know, they may disagree with this and they're entitled to their own opinion, but didn't George Washington want the troops to set a good example? Not just troops, but officers? Is it fair to say that if George Washington was present that he would have been aghast by this? Yes. Is it fair to say that uh, if Washington was uh, present at this time, that he would not have um, he would not have approved of such uh, inhumane treatment? No. He would not have approved of this norm whatsoever, or of this um, temporary norm that's going on. It was bad enough that the um, frontiers people were attacking the customs collectors, and tarring and feathering them. Now all of a sudden we have military officials overseeing uh, prisoners being treated like dirt. So it's a double-edged sword here. The mass arrests went on after November 13th, the dreadful night. Brutality behind the arrests was meant to prevent further means of resistance, as well as discouraging people from from forming anti-government societies and organizations. All of that could be uh, well um, understood, but there again, you have to under- But then again, we might have to ask ourselves: at what expense does that come come at? The ultimate objective lied behind establishing national unity. Judge Richard Peters 
was overwhelmed by the number of prisoners to where he had no choice but to release um, many of them. However, some were sent to state courts for minor offenses. Tell you what, um, I don't know if any uh, prisoners died, but it would have been a real travesty if they had because of uh, the way General Anthony White uh, went about um, treating the uh, Mingo Creek prisoners under his uh, watch. Did Congressman William Finley believe that had Washington accompanied troops into Forks of Ohio, the current situation might have been resolved better? Yes. Finley believed Washington's presence wouldn't have led to multiple arrests, that is, multiple arrests uh, resulting in not having uh, any physical or hardcore proof of evidence. It might also be fair to say that uh, that if Washington's presence, as I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, that if he was there, that you wouldn't have had these uh, prisoners, especially the Mingo Creek prisoners, uh, be tortured the way they were and be deprived of the most uh, basic um, fundamental necessities, especially uh, proper uh, adequate clothing, heating, that is to be, um, they should have gotten uh, warmth, should have had some food. I can't make the comparison, but it's, but some of that behavior just to an extent reminds me of just how inhumanely treated uh, Jewish people had 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 under, undergone uh, throughout the duration of the Holocaust. That's just my take. President Washington uh, returned to Philadelphia under a clean slate status. Hence, he was, uh, un, hence his image was untarnished, despite Alexander Hamilton and Henry Lee taking it upon themselves in unleashing uh, mass herds of dragoons, uh, mounted troops whom rode uh, both on horseback and served as light infantry in quashing the conflict along the forks of the Ohio. Washington did have um, deep trust in Hamilton. He placed deep trust in him, and, and this uh, goes back to the uh, time of the American Revolutionary War. Hamilton uh, went about being in that inner circle, elite inner circle, I should say, of officers whom uh, served under uh, Washington. Both Washington and Hamilton did exchange letters to one another regarding the mass arrests. Washington was okay with the entire matter. But, of course, Washington did not know, uh, and it's probably fair to say that Hamilton uh, did not mention to Washington in his letters about uh, the inhumane treatment that uh, General Anthony uh, White um, conducted with those uh, Mingo Creek prisoners. So it is fair to say that Hamilton probably did cover um, did cover some things, but you know Washington would um, wouldn't have known. Um, and but at the same time, you know Washington is um, okay with the entire matter and how the process got conducted. The focus once again for Washington, and the same could be said for Hamilton and uh, Henry Lee. It was uh, to secure law and order to where America's young republic will remain intact under the present state and into the long-term future. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, podcast segment, and when I'm on the air again next, we'll be uh, discussing part two of this um, mission. You would think it was already uh, resolved, but, um, but we're almost there. 
So thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air with you guys here soon. Uh, No matter where you all live in the world, continue to stay safe, and thanks again for being such ardent listeners. Take care.